How are we doing? Great. <laughs> Do we need to sort of like close our eyes, click our heels together, and say there's no place like fall break at this point? Is that what needs to happen? <laughs> Can we do that? I'm just kidding. Um, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. I know it's a busy time. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Sid Druin. Um, I'm the campus minister with RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, it's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and you all, wherever and whoever you are. And so I just wanted to say um, that RUF is just not for one kind of person. It's for, hopefully, every one of you feels welcome. Every one of you feels like this can be a place where you can be yourself and that you can come. Um, no matter what scene you're from on campus, no matter what personal background you're from, or even kind of where you are, even right this moment with Jesus um, and Christianity. So whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, a believer or a spiritual skeptic, welcome. We're glad you're here. And especially if you're new, uh, we appreciate that, uh, especially. So thanks for coming and taking the time. So this semester, um, we've been looking at the life of Simon Peter, right? Everything okay? <laughs> okay. The, the, uh, this semester, we've been looking at the life of Simon Peter in large group. Um, I've been calling the series Stumbling into a Run. Stumbling into a Run. Uh, we're looking at the life of Simon Peter for three distinct reasons. First, Simon Peter gives us an up-close and interpersonal view of who Jesus is. So we get an up-close and interpersonal view of who Jesus is and what his church is about, even just by how central Simon Peter is. Remember, he's the second most referenced character in all of the Old Testament. The vast majority of the stories of the Old Testament are told about Simon Peter. Um, second, Peter is so much like us like we want to be and like we don't want to be, right? He's constantly making mistakes, often stumbling over himself with Jesus and with other people. You know, sometimes he breaks into a run the way we hide stubbing our toe in a social situation, right? I meant to do that, and I'm going to just break into a spontaneous run. Other times, Peter searing self-honesty gives him a fast and loving momentum towards others and towards Jesus, but our third and perhaps most important reason for studying the life of Simon Peter is that in the midst of Peter's centrality, his stumbling, his loving speed, all of these things show forth Jesus' intimate and unchanging regard for us. And that's the thing to take away, is that we're looking at Simon Peter to look at Jesus and to look at how Jesus looks at us. So um, with all those lookings in mind, uh, we began our study of Peter and Jesus, by looking at the first two meetings that they had together, in John chapter 1 and Luke chapter 5, and then we kind of skipped a few chapters and looked at a day in the life of Jesus and Simon Peter, a 24-hour chunk of time from Matthew 14 and also John chapter 6, uh, and that was a year before Jesus' crucifixion. And again, we're fast-forwarding a year, and we're going straight to this last 24 hours, the last 24 hours between Jesus and uh, Simon Peter, and we're looking at Jesus' death by crucifixion and, and um, rising from a burial tomb in light of this relationship with Simon Peter starting this week. So we're slowing down, and we're considering the long night before Jesus' crucifi crucifixion. And we're going to examine the events that took place over the Last Supper in the book of John, chapter 13. That's what we're up to. I went up to speed. Uh, but before we look at like the bad manners during an extended meal, that's what we're going to go look at for a second, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to talk about this, to study this together. Um, 
to look inside of ourselves and look to your word and to see Jesus. I pray that you would show us Jesus, that you'd open the eyes of our heart to see him. This is just pointless if you don't show up. Um, And I pray that you would help us not to go through the motions, that you'd help us not to, um, that however we're feeling, whether we want to be here or don't want to be here, whether we're stressed or bored, um, whether we're unsure of Jesus or whether we're, we're positive, I pray that you would meet us where we are, that you'd use your word to do that and that your spirit would show up and that you'd fill us. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so one of my favorite singer-songwriters is a guy named David Bazan. Okay? David Bazan also used to be known as a band called Page of the Lion. He has this like long up and down story about where he is with Christianity and with Jesus. But in the midst of one of these changes of spiritual elevation, he penned a song addressed to God that goes like this. Okay? It's weird to think of all the things that have not been keeping up with the times. And I hear that you don't change. How do you expect to keep up with the trends? <laughs> You won't survive the information age unless you plan to change the truth, to accommodate the brilliance of men. The brilliance of men. I'm just a little bit worried. Do you have some sort of plan? Have you finally been defeated by the cunning of fully evolved men? (laughs) David Bazan is voicing a certain fear factor for us here. Okay? You're a freshman. You grew up in a Christian home. You're meeting all of these wonderful people who don't believe in Jesus or are not sure they believe in Jesus, and they're nicer, and they're smarter, and they have more fun than you. You're a junior or you're a senior, okay, and you're just beginning to explore Christianity and take it kind of seriously, and you're wondering if you'd care at all if you were born in a different country or if you went to a different college. Or say you're a campus minister, just hypothetically, uh, who mentally cringes every time he sees a church sign, or worse, here's a person actually say out loud the way that they condense the central message of Christianity, the gospel, down to a mean-spirited comment or a bad, unhelpful joke. Let me give you a few. Need a lifeguard? Ours walks on water. Okay? Or just in time for Halloween, Jesus is a treat. Not a trick, okay? Watch out. They come every year. Um, Coming at you every Monday morning. Um, Our passage suggests that there's a deeper emotion, though, behind the fear. There's this internal cringe. There's this feeling of embarrassment about Jesus that makes us jerk our feet back from his wet, slippery hands. Perhaps like Peter, the Jesus that we want... (laughs) is different than the Jesus we get. Everybody okay with that image? Is that the problem? (laughs) Okay, deep breaths. Here we go. The Jesus that we get is sometimes different than the Jesus that we want. Writer and sometime minister Frederick Buechner situates this gut-level reaction for us in an essay based on a chapel he gave at Phillips Exeter. Buechner describes driving out on the highway, and he sees all these, these signs, right? These signs for shaving cream and pizza places and traffic patterns. But then he notices in white block letters on the side of a cliff or in, and on a billboard the phrase, Jesus saves. 
We've all been here. We can all recognize this. Its effect on Beekner and many of us is a wince. A wince caused by embarrassment. The same kind of subtle discomfort that Peter is feeling when Jesus dresses only in a towel, kneels down, and reaches for his feet. But Beekner continues to probe just why we're so embarrassed at this moment by exploring the effect of this graffitied Jesus saves. He proposes first that writing Jesus in a space like that feels like something very personal written up in a place that's very public. Okay, something very personal written into something very public. He would say it's, it would be easier for us if, it, if the sign said Christ, or better yet, God. We can rest better in those objective theological subjects, better than the oh-so-personal name of Jesus. And second, he says there's something preposterous about the whole thing. Mary's boy, God's son, flattened on the face of a cliff, up among the four-letter words and the names of lovers. Jesus among the swear words and teenage crushes. How humiliating. So here we are with Peter in verse 6. Scared, somewhat embarrassed, cringing at what Jesus is up to, and the groveling example he's setting forth for us. But our passage assures us that Jesus knows exactly what he's up to. And he gets that we, like Peter, don't understand. And we see this later in chapter 13, verse 12. And Jesus' desire, his plan, is to lay aside his outer garments, to tie a towel around his waist, and wash us by hand where we are the most dirty, where we are the most ashamed, even of him. We begin to take in this dread act of Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, by asking two very pointed questions that are on your handout. Okay, first, verses 1 through 5, we're looking at simply, what does Jesus do and why? What's Jesus up to and why? Second, verses 6 through 10, we're looking at why do we and Peter say and do? What are we supposed to do? What are we up to? What do we and Peter say and do and why? That's what we're up to. That's what we're looking at uh, that quickly and that in order. So, you know, as usual, let's take it as it comes. Let's look at the beginning of the passage, the first five verses, and what Jesus did at the original foot washing and why he did it at all. So if you look there with me, I'm going to reread verses three through five. Okay, again for us. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Look, I'm going to resist the urge to read those verses again, and instead just kind of try to explain why I actually think they're so powerful, why I think they're so moving. Let's start with verse 3. Verse 3 reminds us, like the rest of the Gospel of John, that Jesus is God. He knows things in a divine way, right? He knows all things. He knows precisely where he came from and exactly where he's going to. And both of those places are with God God the Father in heaven. Okay? And so, if you were there at the Last Supper in that ancient garage apartment, or if you're reading this with fresh eyes for the first time, if this isn't just completely glazing over for you right now, When Jesus rises up from supper, you're expecting something big, mighty, and glorious, right? Um, 
maybe if you're cynical, you're just expecting some really good dessert. Like he's going to use one of his miracles. Italian gelato. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Pistachio, my favorite. Or if you're serious, uh, more serious, you're thinking Jesus is going to get up and he's going to go take out the, a few Pharisees. He's going to dem- demolish all the Roman occupiers. Or he's going to at least cure the dropsy epidemic. Instead, in verses 4 through 5, we read that Jesus takes off all of his clothes. He covers his private parts with a hand towel, and he slides his wet fingers between 12 different sets of dirty toes. It's exactly what he's up to. And as shocking as he just put that, that's nothing compared to what the original audience would have thought. The first century Jews would have thought it was more shocking. Okay? First, Jesus, the God of the universe, the famous master, the famous teacher, the famous healer, that Jesus leaves his seat of honor the way he was laying with his, his head towards the food and his feet out towards the exit. He dresses in slave clothes, walks to the lowest position possible outside the inner circle at people's feet. Then Jesus does something only the lowest of the low slaves would ever do, the youngest slave the non-Jewish slave, the punished slave. He scrubs dirty urine and feces caked feet. Human and animal sanitation in that time period happened along the sides of and oftentimes in the middle of the streets. So it's a good chance that it would have been pretty nasty. And this would have been like totally unheard of for a disciple, let alone a master rabbi teacher. Like, look, one rabbi, just to give you some ancient sources, one rabbi, Judah Hanasi, was said to be so humble he would do anything for other people, except, of course, leave the seat of honor. Okay? Or other rabbis of the day were concerned that disciples, not rabbis like Jesus, just disciples, were getting carried away, right, in their devotion. So they set up a book of rules. Like, okay, now here's when, when, when too far is too far. Okay? Now we know when to say when. Okay? And here's what one book of rules was. One rule. Every task that the slave does for his master will the disciple do for his teacher except for one. Like you can act like a slave except one way. He shall not loose the thong of his sandal. Kedubath, 96a. Okay? Jesus not only loosens the thong of his disciples' sandals, he goes a quantum leap farther. He washes the feet beneath and on top of the sandals. I'm really afraid we're still losing the shock value, the embarrassment of this issue. So I want you to imagine a scene with me. It's happening at Davidson. Okay? I want you to imagine Coach Bob McKillop coming over to your table in commons, slowly unbuttoning his cufflinks, sliding off his signature red tie off his neck, shaking loose his black suit jacket, kicking off his polish to a shine Italian loafers, and then, and you can barely take in the awkwardness of this moment, he starts to remove his white pressed down Oxford shirt, button by button, his stiffly creased black suit pants, his white undershirt. Is it a wife beater? You will know firsthand. (laughs) And in his tidy whiteies, he begins to slip off your hunter boots or your slide-on toms, roll down your cotton socks, and then on his hands and knees, under a long table next to a plate glass window, 
Coach McKillop will look you straight in the pupils, smiles at you, begins to pour and then caress slightly warm tap water over all of your calluses and bunions. Only then to take his signature Davidson red tie from over his shoulder and begin to wipe your feet. First at the heels, then the arches, then the balls, and finally the toes of your very, all the way to the very tip of your toenails. If you're starting to feel embarrassed, that's the point. <laughs> okay? You're entering the scene emotionally, finally. Okay? Like the disciples there at that scene, we should feel totally embarrassed for and maybe actually embarrassed about God. And part of the embarrassment is that Jesus is intentionally upsetting our notions of social status, our notions of power, our notions of authority, and how, should, how we should act. The God of the universe versus a basketball coach. Okay? That's the difference. It's that upsetting. Listen to the way that theologian Leslie Newbigin puts it. The natural man makes gods in his own image. And the supreme God will be the one who stands at the summit of a chain of command. How can the natural man recognize the supreme God in the stooping figure of a slave clad only in a loincloth? The master is the slave. The slave is the master. All normal conceptions of power and authority are completely overturned. If this slave who stoops to wash his disciples' feet is indeed the master, then we must frankly declare ourselves atheists with reference to the normal use of the word God. Okay, I'm going to say that again because it's pretty complicated. If this slave who, is, who stoops to wash his master's feet is indeed the master, then we must frankly declare ourselves atheists with reference to the normal use of the word God. What's he saying? This is wild. This is topsy-turvy. This is subversive. Jesus is showing us the master of the universe is also the lowest of all servants. This is the very opposite of a power grab. Do you get that? Okay? The Jesus who washes people's feet turns philosophers like Michel Foucault and Frederick Nietzsche into knots. Why? Because they want to make every human system, they want to make everything that we do all about a will to power. But think about what's going on here. It's the exact opposite. It's, if it's a power play, it's the worst human history has ever seen. Just read the genealogy of morals and you'll see the convolutions going on. But I also really don't want to miss the emotional feeling point about Jesus. And, and I just want you to see, it's like total, it's embarrassingly wonderful. It's blushingly beautiful. I'm sorry I have to quote yet another person, but I can't put it any better than Severian of Gabala, Syria, did in 5th century AD. He who is clothed in light as a robe was clad in a cloak. He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped himself in a towel. He who pours the water into the rivers and pools tips some water into a basin. And he before whom every knee bends in heaven on earth and under the earth knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. The Lord of all creation washed his disciples' feet. This was not an affront to his dignity, but a demonstration of his boundless love for us. What's that mean? What Severian is saying is that Jesus risked his dignity. 
He emptied himself of significance and power and influence and glory in order to serve and to wash us, in order to make us spiritually clean by his boundless love. You see what Jesus is doing here is so significant. He's washing his his disciples' feet, and it's meant to be the signpost, right? It's meant to be this enacted parable that leads his disciples not to stop there, but to keep moving, and leads us not to stop there, but to keep moving to what verse 1 calls his hour. And what's his hour? Jesus' death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself not just to wash feet like a servant, Jesus humbled himself to suffer the punishment of a runaway slave. That is crucifixion. But why? Why would he do that? Because the cross was the only way someone absolutely clean, someone who did and thought and felt only righteousness, could take on all of our dirt like a towel and make us clean. But notice in verses 6 through 11 that Jesus crawls around the table from these semi-anonymous 11 other disciples, finally to Peter. And Peter's all-too-recognizable reaction makes sure to turn our attention. Okay? It turns our attention away from like generic embarrassment about God and maybe about other people to a specific and particular embarrassment about God and about ourselves. Myself. For those keeping track, we're at point two what Peter said and what we said, what Peter did and what we did and why. Okay, look with me at verses 6 through 11, okay? The scriptures invite us to sit with Peter in the scene, okay? We're not at Jesus' right hand, because Peter's not. John has the seat of honor. But guess who's at his left hand? Not Peter again. The place of intimate friendship is not taken by Peter. Who's it taken by? Judas Iscariot the one who betrays Jesus, okay? So perhaps you're already, if you're with Peter, brooding about how far away you feel from Jesus at this point and why you're there. And maybe that like lines up with how you're feeling right now, okay? You're like rest amid these restless reviews and relentless papers and nonstop meetings. And you're thinking, could he feel any farther away? Why am I here? But notice that Jesus slides towards you towards Peter, half crouching, half crawling, laying down you, towards you, laying down with your feet pointed away from the food. You hear Jesus coming before you see him, right? Because you're not facing that direction. You hear the sloshing of water in a basin as it skids across bumpy boards. The sound of skin squeaking to a stop on wood. And then Jesus comes into view and you see his goofy grin the serious creases around his eyes, and the way his loincloth meets towel flaps in the breeze made by his sweaty bear crawl. And like Peter, you turn yourself, torso then head, to look backwards towards your feet, and Jesus there, and he's he's cupping water with both of his hands. He's about to let splash down all over the sewage and the dirt and the raw sewage, sewage stuck to your toe knuckles, right? But the last moment, you swing your feet up underneath you, and you face Jesus, first with an unbelieving question, verse 6, then with a swift declaration, no. No way are you ever going to wash my feet. 
In the original language, Peter says no to Jesus twice. He underlines my of my feet and uses the phrase into the ages or forever. Forever. Okay? Peter means business. Okay? He's telling Jesus, what is your problem of all of the inappropriate things you have ever done with me? This is the most inappropriate. But why? Why does Peter, why do we pull our feet back and just let Jesus have it? Here's my contention, and this is the scripture's burden. Because God's embarrassingly tender love chooses to bathe us in all of our carefully hidden crevices, in all of our most neglected nooks and crannies. God's salvation begins with exposed, vulnerable places like feet. Again, Frederick Buechner helps clarify just how we're embarrassed by God's love. He says it this way, it's not just the Jesus part of the Jesus saves graffiti that offends us, that makes us squirm. It's the word saves that we wince at as well. We wince at the word saves. The sign, the message of Christianity tells us you need to be saved. In the words of Buechner, Jesus saves says you have no peace inside your skin. You are not happy. You are not whole. You will never make it. You have not and you will not, at least without help, make it. In other words, Jesus' crucifixion cleansing, pictured by the washing of the feet, is unconditional. Okay, It's counter your condition kind of love. And to accept this kind of love means accepting that I am more needy and weak, more self-preoccupied, more vulnerable, and more helpless than I care to admit. This means like no amount of scheduling, community service, leadership positions, intelligence, niceties, passion, winning friends and influencing people, type B, chillaxing, or even religious piety can make us, let alone the world, clean. Verse 8 is clear. Jesus tells us, if I can't wash you, you can't have me. If I can't forgive you, you can't be with me. But I want you to hear this too. It also means the God who knows every single thing about you, from the childhood medals that your mom and dad brag about, to the stuff that no one has ever heard, the thoughts, the desires, the things that we can't stop doing or start doing, the things that you imagine disqualify you from Davidson and friendship and life, let alone God. God knows all about you and all about me, and even the shame, the cringing that we feel sometimes about him. And he laid aside his heavenly glory, he put on a human slave towel, and he bathes our every crevice clean. Verse 10 is clear. Jesus tells us the one who has bathed is completely clean. You are clean. You cannot add anything to the cleanliness, nor do we need to rinse and repeat, nor do we need to do it again to make it take. And if you're starting to believe what is too good not to be true, a deeper embarrassment surfaces, doesn't it? We're just going to unpack hardened levels of embarrassment. Perhaps we're not just cringing at God's love for us, us of all people. Perhaps we're cringing for God. Right? William Temple puts it this way. We rather shrink from this text. We would be humble before God, but we, would, we don't want God to be humble before us. 
We would be humble before God, but we don't want God to be humble before us. You got like God's love is so over the top. It's so in your face. It's so at our feet. It's so hard to let Jesus' love love us the way he wants to love us. I like the way that, that writer Nadia Bowles Weber puts it. She says, I want to register my opposition to God's grace. And some of us feel that way right here, right now. But God incarnate argues to wash a nobody fisherman's feet. Amazing. God incarnate is insisting on me. He wants to heal. He wants to caress. He wants to massage that part of you right there, right now, as awkward as it gets. What in the world? What in the world? The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings demands to do absolutely free work. Jesus doesn't need anything from me. He doesn't want my resume. He doesn't want my references. He doesn't want my deserving. He insists on doing the rescuing the hard way, the only way, on his hands and knees, like a slave to the end. The sour wine, pointed spear, hammered nails, cross-shaped bitter end. And of course, Frederick Buechner, for the last time, I promise, helps us recognize that we are wincing, most of all for God, at his vulgarity to the very end. Okay, Listen to the way he puts it. The vulgarity of a God who adorns the sky at sunrise and sundown with colors no decent painter would dream of placing together on a single canvas. The vulgarity of a God who keeps breaking back into the muck of this world. The vulgarity of a God who is born into a cave among hicks and the steaming dung of beasts, only to grow up and die on a cross between crooks. The vulgarity of a God who tampers with the lives of crooks of clowns like me, to the point where we come among crowns, crooks and clowns like you with a white paint brush of our own and nothing more profound to say, nothing more precious or crucial to finally say than this. Yes, it's true. He does save Jesus. He gives life. He makes whole. And if you choose to be, you will be with him in paradise. In other words, What makes us say Jesus saves? What makes us accept Jesus' washing of our feet, of our whole bodies? It's this ridiculous, gracious, caring, caring and glorious regard, this truth. Jesus lived like a clown to save a clown like me. Jesus died as a crook to save a crook like me. But look, what do you, what do, what do I, what do we say or do about all of this sloppy, embarrassing love that's just been dropped in your laps for 20 minutes? What do we do about it? First of all, amid the very swarm of all of our objections and shame and doubts, my first piece of advice, the first piece of advice of this passage is give in to the good news. <laughs> give in to the good news. Rest in Jesus' life. Rest in his death. Rest in his resurrection over and above your misgivings, misgivings included, not excluded. It's so hard to feel totally clean, isn't it? It's so hard that like Peter in verse 9, we often want some sort of do-over we don't need. We so often want something else first. We want to prove ourselves. We want something that we can do for God. We want something that we can do for the world in order to say we're clean. And right after this, Sometimes at the very same time, 
we get in the words of Cornelius Plantinga to receive God's self-sacrifice like an infant and then give ourselves to it like an adult. Let's say that again. We get to receive this, all of this cleanliness, all of this washing, all of this self-sacrifice like an infant. Bring nothing to the table. And we get to, we get to give ourselves to it like a full-grown adult. What does that mean? Okay, It means this. We're called like Jesus to thankless, lengthy, annoying, and sometimes vulgar things and people. But of course you can't serve this way until only as you allow (coughs) Jesus to serve you his way. I'm going to end like I began with lyrics to another song penned by another person who experienced up, up, spiritual ups and downs in his life. This guy's a lot older than David Bazan, no longer living. His name is George Herbert. It's a poem about God's demanding service. It goes something like this. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew me nearer, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, a guest to be worthy here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply. Who made your eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I'll serve, I say. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and I did eat. (laughs) Okay, let me say the last part again because it's so important. When we feel this kind of welcome, when when we're welcome this way, against all odds, against all of our counter-purposes, our inclination is to say, my dear, then I will serve. But look what love says. Look what God says. You must sit down and taste my meat. And so I did sit and I did eat. Such a beautiful way of thinking about the embarrassment, the shock, the fear of what it feels like to follow Jesus a passage like this. Don't pull, let's not pull our feet back from Jesus. Okay? That's the call of this passage. Why? Because we get to taste and see he's good. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this passage and this time, and I pray that you would be with um, our hearts, with our minds, as we wrestle with the Jesus that does undignified things that goes counter our expectations. Jesus, help us to be served. In your name we pray. Amen.